Hi, it's Mike Metcalf. This time talking more generally about human behaviour. I want to present something that's a little bit in contrast to the standard psych approach to human behaviour. That is, what makes us do what we do, what actions we take, what are the drivers, the actions we take. My concern with the mainstream psych literature is that it's a little bit too individualistic. It assumes humans are standalone beings or, or autonomies. The, the social interaction part has been played down. Now, there is a lot of literature on the social interaction, but it isn't the, the main theme or the main assumption, I think, of a lot of psychology literature. A lot of the experiments have been done as if individuals are standalone beings or creatures or machines. And I think this most likely comes from Descartes' mind and body dualism, or perhaps more accurately his autonomy or mechanistic view of the human body. Okay, so the system that I'm going to argue for and, and reflect on is that human behavior, what we do, is the outcome of a choice that we make about who or what to imitate, when and where. Imitation coming from past experiences. So I see a person do something, I see a tree do something, I see an animal do something, I can even see the weather do something, and I can remember that as a pattern of activity, as a pragmatic concept, as a system. And later in life, when I'm deciding how to respond, I can imitate that. Typically, one would imitate people you respect or things you respect. I have discussed this in terms of decision-making, but I wanted to be a bit more general here. Notice, first of all, that I, the issue, under the issue of free will, I am saying that you have free will to remix your past experiences, but only your past experiences. Remembering the very pragmatic concept that I can't imagine something I've not experienced. So I can't imagine the inside of someone's house when I've never been in there. I can sort of guess that it's going to have you know, a kitchen and a sofa and television, but... I, I can't even imagine it, really, unless I've experienced it. And even when I imagine it as having a kitchen and a sofa and a television, that's because I've experienced that in most homes I go to. So we're bounded by our past experiences. Of course, I can watch something on the television and pick that up as an experience. I can hear someone tell a story and pick that up as an experience. It doesn't have to be first-hand. And I would say your choice of what to imitate would, would start in a sort of default sense as children imitating what the parents do. But there might be certain things that you don't approve of that your parents do. Or you meet somebody like a grandparent or a, you know, a hero, a role model, or see a character on the television and think, I would like to be more like that than my parents are. But a lot of default things like your language and your customs, uh, culture, gestures, are imitated from your parents. 
but you have the mental capacity to imitate whatever you want, whenever you want. So I could imitate a rabbit in a board meeting or a fox because I have to be very careful about my credibility and I wouldn't, wouldn't do it literally, but there are aspects of these things that I could imitate. So we're getting very close to metaphor here, aren't we? But I think it's better to talk about imitation and analogy, mimicking. So in my system of human behavior, there's a lot of emphasis on social interaction as opposed to autonomy. There is some autonomy, but it's the autonomy to choose. The social interaction provides the feedstock for what you choose from. So those poor children who are locked in a cupboard for the first number of years of their lives really struggle to have anything to draw on when they're making choices and decisions. Asked what they thought about, they would say nothing because they had nothing to think about. This is going to overlap with the issues of blame or, as the management literature or some of the psych literature likes to talk about, locus of control, whether you blame yourself for things or whether you blame other people for things. So dealing first with the autonomy one, so we look at a human being who's sort of bag covered in skin with all sorts of enzymes, muscles and, and whatever blood circulation going on, and it's possible to think of them as autonomous. But we know from solitary confinement, people on desert islands, children locked in cupboards, that human beings do not thrive. In fact, they will go backwards. Their reasoning, even their ability to see and hear and talk, will regress if they're stuck in isolation with very little sensory input. One of the problems with the desert island syndrome is that if you're on a desert island and are scared that there are animals on this island that might eat you or people who might turn up and make stew of you, then you have nobody to turn to to discuss this. It, you can get very, very paranoid. If, and, whereas at least on a desert island there are certain sensory inputs like going fishing or swimming or picking fruit, whereas the, the poor guys put in small cells in, in, a, in the sense made uh, famous by um, Papillion, the movie, but I think increasingly there's a movement in America to, to stop the punishment of solitary confinement because of the mental damage it does. Treating people as autonomous has led in the past to think of workers as like machines and then being compared to robots. Clearly a very dangerous thing to do and a dehumanizing thing to do and a hierarchical thing to do. You know, we're human and we boss you around, you're robots. That, that phrase that's used a lot more than it should be, that in this job you have to leave your brain at the door, is... Horrifying attitude towards human autonomy that people are individuals, and yet we know in some circumstances, like in their rights or who committed a crime, we do pick out individuals uh, to be responsible for those actions. So there's an interplay between the social and the autonomous and the independent. I just think that a lot of the psych literature has put too much emphasis on the independent or the autonomous. 
let me explain this a little bit with a famous classic experiment by Ash, which is where a handful of people conspire against a subject, an unknown subject, a subject, an unknowing subject. So the conspirators agree that when showing a series of lines, straight drawn lines on a piece of paper, they will conspire to say that not the longest one is indeed the longest one and see whether the subject goes along with them or not. In other words, basically doesn't go with what their eyes are saying, goes with what the group of people are saying. And we found in a lot of cases, I'm going to talk about 70-odd, 80-odd percent of the cases, they go around the class saying, what size do you think, which is the longest one, which is the longest one, which is the longest one. When it comes to the subject, in 70-odd percent of cases, they will agree with the others and not say what, in fact, their eyes are telling them. Now, this is held out as evidence in psychology that we're open to peer pressure or social pressure, which I suspect we all knew. Okay, so my interpretation of this is that the subject is choosing to imitate those in the room as opposed to imitating whoever taught them about definition of the word longest, as in longest line. They have to choose who to imitate, their, if you like, geometry teacher, or the people in this room, and they're opting in this case to choose the people in this room. I think there's analogous to saying farmers know that the earth is round, but they choose to act as if the earth is flat when, when working and, and measuring and thinking about their own particular property, that their own block of land, their own farm, because the concept of flatness works better for them in that context. But if they went off navigating around the world in a yacht, they would revert back to the concept of roundness. They're choosing which concept to use in which situation. A concept being a pattern of activity that you're previously aware of or experienced. A system, in fact, but we'll, we'll stick with the word concept. The closest the site comes to what I'm trying to do, put an emphasis on choosing who to imitate, is the social learning literature, where except that most of what you learn at school or in your profession or in your life about how to treat people is a social interaction effect. It, we listen to others and we repeat what they say. I, I understand gravity because of the way it was explained to me by my physics teacher back at school, and I accepted that and I repeat that as a force between two masses. Now, I don't know that. I've never measured it. To some extent, I'm just repeating, I'm just imitating the explanation that was provided to me at school. Now, this brings up the issue of, of consequences, doesn't it? If I repeat that and people laugh at me and say, that's stupid, it's got nothing to do with the mysterious forces between two bodies that haven't touched each other, it's all to do with distortions in time-space continuum, I will alter the description I give of gravity because of the consequences, the social consequences of, of what I say and what I do. In a more extreme example, if I kill someone, 
my peers will decide whether I'm a hero or a murderer. If I killed you know, a terrorist who's just about to kill some children, I would be a hero. Whereas if I killed an old lady you know, crossing the road slowly because I got bad-tempered, I would be considered to be a murderer. It's, it's the social consequences of an action that teach me, I learn from, for future actions. So if I choose to imitate something, I then observe the social consequences of that, and then if I don't like them, I imitate somebody else. If I do like them, I must likely continue to imitate the original source. Let me go back to the issue of blame. I've always felt that the most important piece of advice I can give somebody about choosing friends, marriage partners, or people to work with is what what is their attitude to blame? Do they walk around saying things are other people's fault? The reason I'm late for work, the reason I didn't get this done is because my mother was dreadful or because I went to a crappy school or because of this. So people who blame others, to me, are a bit of a liability. What you want to hear people say is, OK, well, I went to a crappy school, but I never really made up for it, or I, I could have made up for it since, or it was up to me to do something about it. But, of course, you don't want an extreme form where somebody says things like, it's my fault it's raining today. There's a limit to this, of course, but you... If if you're on a spectrum, you think it's better to hang out with people who take a lot of the blame on themselves. In other words, they're they're talking about guilt, but they're also talking about improvement, continuous improvement. So not only say, well, I should have done something about this, but in the sense of saying, I need to work harder, do better, improve things. So it's a concept of continuous improvement taken on yourself. This is why I worry a little bit about the, the, the some elements of socialism that sort of say, oh, it's sociological forces that determine whether you're poor or rich or whatever. I'm sure they exist and they do, but the, the issue is, what are you going to do about it? It's, it's stoicism, it's, it's playing the cards you're dealt. Um, you're looking for people who accept that I, you know, I, I had bad parents, I... I'm overweight, I I don't know, I I didn't have very good schooling, but I'm going to improve and do something about it. That is taking responsibility on yourself rather than blaming others. This is choosing to imitate the successful, if you like, or or the those interested in continuous improvement as opposed to imitate those who take up the role of being a victim. I've always been sort of interested in in people's critique of poverty and the working classes, especially from the 1930s, you know, books like Wigan Pier, where people have said, oh, these poor people, they're in dreadful condition, they've got dreadful housing, they've got no schooling, and they've got this dreadful work, and, you know, life's against them, they don't stand a chance. But when you hear the voice of individuals, they're sort of saying, well, we thought we were making quite a good job of of, of the cards we've been dealt, of the life we've been dealt. A lot of people worked hard, went to school, looked after their family. Other people sort of drank and, 
and didn't do anything or lazy. It, it's an attitude of whether you're trying to improve what you've got or whether you're simply going to blame others and do nothing. This is an issue of choice, of role model. Locus of control being the idea that some people have an internal locus of control, that is, they blame themselves for most things in the world, and people who have an external locus of control, they blame others for things. Um, we're saying that one should have a sort of healthy, if you like, left of centre, uh, closer to internal than external, in order to progress in the world without getting depressed and, and upset and becoming a liability to other people. Using the concept of evolution to think about this, I think my system of human behaviour, that we choose which things to imitate when and where, can be well justified in terms of evolution. We accept the human brain to be a network of neurons which is capable of recognising patterns. So we have an experience, we watch someone do something, maybe we watch how an adult treats a child or how our parents treat us, we see a pattern of activity, and we can then imitate that and choose whether we repeat that pattern of activity. So there's nothing very clever here in terms of you know, evolution requirement. I mean, it, it wouldn't matter if you're a worm, a pigeon, you know, a dog or a human being. You have a network brain that has certain experiences and is able to compare those experiences or those concepts, able to recognize a pattern of a situation and then draw on other patterns, a pattern just being a, a path through a neural network. I suspect human beings just have a lot more patterns, a lot more neural networks, and I suspect that's led to us being able to not only imitate what they do, their pattern of activity, but also to imitate what uses you've experienced them being put to. So if I see somebody use an axe in a strange way, I can imitate that, and I, I can add it to my repertoire of, of what use an axe is, the consequences of an axe existing, its uses. I, I can imagine lots of uses for an axe. Um, I'm not sure a dog can imagine lots of uses for an axe. Now, the skill that I have, or humans have, might be simply a result of the sheer number of neural networks, but... I think it's very, there's an important evolutionary step when you go from a dog seeing another dog fight for a bone and get it and think, well, I'm going to do that, to a situation where I can sit here and imagine the uses for a paperclip. I don't imagine a, a dog can do the same thing. Unless it's directly experienced, it wouldn't be able to create new patterns from remixing other patterns. Well, not to the same extent as human beings. Theory of human behaviour I'm presenting here comes very much out of pragmatism, William James, and I suppose Dewey, onto Rorty. We're trying to avoid the postmodern suggestion in there. That is pluralism within science, that it's perfectly rational to see things from different points of view. We can see the stars as as being the result of attraction or time-space continuum or 
being a clockwork process, science uh, allows multiple interpretations of things. I say this just because I think Rorty gets very close to the continental philosophy. But he's very interested in William James's consequences and the idea of using concepts to interpret the world, as does uh, Stephen Toulmin. There's a little bit of a history here that I don't fully understand, but uh, my brief interpretation is that William James was an early psychologist. You've got to remember his early works was some problems in psychology, but to, to a large extent he got pushed aside by those who wanted to follow Freud's approach to psychology and then on to Jung and the, the rats and stats psychology where they wanted to do experiments on rats and on students. I think then it moved from a conception of the world, these sort of mysterious forces. You've got, you got to remember that certain people like Popper thought that Freudian psychology was a big fraud because it couldn't be empirically tested. I figure that my system of behaviour, the choosing to imitate, could easily be empirically tested by simply identifying the influences and experiences that people had. It would be a falsification if you could find behaviour which had no prior experiences to draw on. The point I'm trying to make is I think psychology moved off towards Freud and Jung um, which tells some lovely stories and I, which gets very mixed up with Christianity. I suspect that if we'd stayed with uh, William James's talking about reflecting off concepts and, and Dewey's following that up as well and, and Rorty, that we would have a better understanding of, of human behaviour and one much better tied in with language because remembering the basic point then is that I can experience... I don't know, a rabbit running fast when it's being chased by a dog. I can choose to imitate that if I'm being chased by a lion. Or, of course, if my parents are chased by a lion, I can imitate that as an experience. And then when I have language, I can give it a name. Like uh, defensive running or run like hell or some such thing. But language allows me to share that concept with other people, label it and share it. We need a, a, an interpretation of human behaviour that includes language and the impact of language and balances up the issue of reasoning and rationality with what people have called the intuitive or feelings, behaviour coming out of those things. And... Uh, Behaviour isn't really just about a concept, but concepts in tension, in dialectic with each other, as in, you know, good is in contrast to evil. So I know about evil, I know about good, I choose good, but I'm very aware of evil, evil, and there are bits I can choose out of evilness. I understand patterns of, ex of experience as being in tension with other patterns of experience. So even the fight and flight, if I, I could say, well, I know the concept of run like hell, I know the concept of stand and fight. When I run like hell, it, it's, that concept is known to me in contrast to, in, in dialectic with, the, another concept or other concepts.
maybe another one that overlaps is run up a tree or run over the bear pit. I'm not saying that people hold one concept in their mind. I'm saying they hold a handful of concepts in their mind. And these are intention, these patterns of activity. And they choose one well aware of the other ones. Which is why maybe in repeat situations we do not do the same things. Because we've just, for some strange reason, we default to another, using another concept. So when somebody begs in the street, on some occasion I can be kind and caring. Another occasion I can suddenly be a bit cross and off with them simply because I'm, I'm imitating the actions or experiences of different things or different people at different times. I think you've got to think of these experiences I'm imitating as being in tension with each other. I've just been catching up on the work of Ian McGilchrist, who is re-looking at or has re-looked at why and the impact of or the consequences of as having a brain in two parts. We have a very distinct brain in two parts. Now, you know, why do we have it in two parts and what's the point of that? And his studies, which include neuroscience and philosophy and a few other things, in a lovely multidisciplinary approach, which re-looks at the divided brain research throwing out an awful lot of what was done in the past and trying to totally rethink the issue, he argues that the left tends to be for detail and tradition and process, and the right tends to be for seeking newness, exploring. One of his better examples is saying the left side of your brain is used when you're hunting or when you're looking for something. He used the example of a bird looking for seed amongst grits. That detailed sort of work where you're going forward in the world as the dominant factor. And the right-hand brain is more you being aware that you somebody might treat you as food, that uh, the environment might suddenly fall down on you. So you have this bigger picture, if you like, going on in the right-hand side of the brain. Another example, which I think he explored with Jordan Patterson, was hearing a noise next door when you're in a hotel room, and there's a bit of you going, well, mind your own business, nothing to do with you, keep your head down, it'll go away. And the other half of your brain is saying, go have a look, go knock on the door, go and inquire, maybe you can help, maybe it'll be interesting, maybe you'll learn. And then the left-hand side of your brain is going, uh, it might go badly, you might get embarrassed, you might get hurt whatever, they might be cross with you. So you're in this sort of conflict of behaviour. However, I think all these behaviours are patterns of experience. It's sort of just where they went in your brain. And there must be a sort of randomness or possibly an experience that sort of says, listen to the one in the left rather than the right-hand side of your brain. Again, that would be an imitation, wasn't it? If you were brought up with very conservative... Um, people, they might say, listen to the left-hand side of your brain. Get it right, get the detail right. You know, Don't worry about world affairs or the big picture. You know, measure it carefully, get it right. And then other people would have been trained much more in that leadership role, if you like, about the big picture's important, leave the detail to others, 
Um, I think a lot of the training for people who to go out in the empire and help manage the world, training for politics, as in philosophy, politics and economics, was really a study in the big picture, not in the detail of things. Whereas if you study something like architecture or accountancy, it's a, it's a study of the detail of things. And some of us do one better than the other, and maybe that's a left and right brain If your heroes want you to be right-brained and think big picture and not details, then one assumes you'll do that. But if your heroes think that's a lot of waffle, what we're going to do is get down to the detail, engineering calculations, then I assume you'll imitate that more often than not. We all end up in situations where we don't get to choose. So even if you have a job as an architect, maybe there are times when you've got to be big picture visionary and other times you've got to be very precise about what are the stress and strains of this piece of material and will it fall down or will it carry the weight? We have to switch from one to other given the problem in front of us. But we might still have a general preference for one or the other because of past influences in our lives. Let me move on now to the issue of Are we born with a blank slate as a brain? Or are we born with a personality? Um, Some people are often surprised that their children turn out to be evil and unpleasant, or somebody they know, and think, well, they had every advantage, or they they brought up in the same circumstance as me, but they turned out bad and I turned out good. Or even intelligence, you might say, well there was 10 children and one of them turned out to be a genius. Isn't that a bit strange? They must have been born differently somehow. That their behaviour is in their genes. This, of course, is the nature-nurture argument, which I often think is a bit dangerous. You should be thinking more in terms of, by the time somebody is 18, what is their personality or behaviour? You know, what influences have they chosen by default? And can they be retrained in other behaviours? And again, I think a lot of that is they have to choose who they imitate. So people will change their ways if they suddenly get new heroes. Expect um, when you're dealing with addiction, people have got to change their heroes, choose to change them for themselves before they'll change their behaviour, rather than having someone come along and preach to them and tell them they're wrong or punish them for doing something wrong. Interesting punishment because Christians, one can be a martyr and and take a lot of punishment and it's really just reinforcing what you thought originally rather than making you do something different or it makes you do it in a different way. But when, and same with prison reform I think, when people choose to be different it's because they've changed their role models, they've changed, there's somebody else that they're imitating Even if you do that one, I think it's a very American thing, where they say they've found Jesus, and you you think, well, they have genuinely changed their behavior. Because I I think that that a lot of religion, gods and Jesus, is about role models. And if you believe in a Christian God, you tend to believe in things like humility, turning the other cheek, hard work, the, the, the pride of hard work, equality increasingly community, involvement, fellowship. There are concepts or patterns of activity 
that you recognise from your religious leaders and if you or images and uh, one chooses to imitate those. The fact that you call that bunch of concepts that is now giving purpose to your life, God or Jesus, is fine. But I think it's the it's the pattern of activities behind it that is interesting. Of course, it's unfortunate that some young people choose the sort of terrorist jihadi thing to imitate as, as a as a role model. But uh, I, I think this is why that one of the solutions of the, the terrorists must be for um, liberal and and passive Muslims to convince people that they're they're imitating the wrong concepts in Islam. So going back to the nature and nurture thing, a lot of times management uh, educators will discuss whether leaders are born or whether they're made. Let's say I think you should really be saying are leaders something that emerge at 18 or do they have to go through a formal education process? And I, I think if you come out of a family where leadership's a big issue and there's a lot of leadership stuff going on at your school and your sports clubs and that sort of thing, maybe come out at 18 with an understanding of what leadership is and you'd imitate those behaviours. Hopefully you imitate the ones where leaders are examples or exemplars rather than unfortunate interpretation as leadership as the guy sitting in the back room with a spreadsheet measuring and calculating other people's performance and, and criticising them. A formal education might work, but I still think that people will, only, will go through the process of education unless there's something that they see going well. Um, if there's something to imitate. If, if somebody's not a leader um, and you're trying to persuade them to become a leader, then I think they've got to respect leaders. They've got to see people doing things and they think, I would like to do that. But the, the fact they're not a leader most likely means that they've had particular experiences and decided to imitate those who are contrarian or act the role of the, the oppressed victim who has you know, leaders bullying them. But it, again, we come back to the deciding who or what to imitate when and where. Using what I think is an interesting concept from Talib, that is the anti-fragile as opposed to resilient. So if disasters occur in your life, and if most people are honest, various forms of a disaster do occur again and again, it's often said that you know, maybe the best thing to do is be resilient. You bring your children up to be resilient, not to automatically take the role of the victim that things will happen, people will die, they'll be sad, they'll not go where they want, storms will blow their house over, and they should really be able to laugh it on, move on, and build on it, be stoic about it. Locally, I, I, I live in an environment where wildfires burn down houses. Now, to me, it's a relief to hear people say things like, well, my house needed burning down, it was crappy. Whereas other people in dreadful tears because their house has burned down and they've lost everything. One sort of 
a resilience and, and one is adopting a victim approach. Of course, I feel sorry for people who've lost everything if it's upsetting them, but it, they, their behaviour is a matter of who they're going to imitate, what, what pattern of behaviour they want to imitate. Maybe a middle ground is people who say, oh yes, but at least we're alive, sort of thing. So they imitate the material things don't matter as much as people things. And again, I'm listening to people when their house is burnt down and their neighbour's house wasn't burnt down, and admittedly 10 years later, saying, thank God, because I got a new house and now their house is, uh, uh, you know, looks old compared to mine. It gave me a fresh start and we, we did this and we did that. And, I'm, and that's worked out well for me. So that's, again, choosing what pattern of behaviour you're going to imitate. Taleb's point is that resilience is most likely not enough. You should actually move into a situation of being strong enough to benefit from a disaster or a catastrophe. It should actually work out to your benefit. Now, I think somebody who thinks, well, if my house gets burnt down, that gives me the opportunity to, to build a new house how I want it, is not just being resilient, but being anti-fragile. They've, they've adopted a frame of mind that says, you know, I, I could benefit from my house burning down. Something I suspect the insurance companies wouldn't encourage. But again, you could choose to imitate somebody who sees disaster as an opportunity. I think that that movement of you know, that in contrast to post-traumatic stress, there's a lot of people talking about post-traumatic growth. That is because you've had a traumatic event, it makes you appreciate that you're alive, live your life more meaningfully, be able to make better choices about what to do because you're well aware of how things can be different. But again, we're imitating concepts learnt from others. So in summary then, I'm, I'm arguing that it, it might be useful to think of human behaviour more in terms of people's actions are decided by who they decide or choose to imitate who or what, when and where they choose to imitate. Now there must be a sort of default thing going on here where if you don't think about it very much you will imitate this thing as in the tradition in your area, your parents' behaviour or whatever. If you had a, a father that used to hit members of the family, um, you know, mothers and children, when you grow up, you might find that you, you know, instinctively got a bad temper, but you can choose to alter that. You're going to choose to do something about it. it it's, it's a privilege, it's a spoilt behaviour to continue to do it. You can choose to imitate somebody else. I don't want to totally deny physiological effects. I mean, there might be some people who, when surprised, get an adrenaline, adrenaline rush or a chemical rush of some sort that they interpret as anger. If you learn to deal with that by taking deep breaths or saying to yourself, 
no, 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 you're better than that, or you can train yourself to react differently because if, in fact, you get angry and you get what you want and people run around after you, then you've got the social consequences reinforcing your behaviour. I've sometimes seen this in little children. There are some people who, when they get, say, accidentally hit, you know, in an accident, but another kid runs into them and they bang their head in the door, they, they get cross. And if you say to them, no, no, you're confusing hurt and cross here in your heads, that if you bang your heads, rub it, take deep breaths, and, and make very sure that you don't react verbally or swinging your fists at, at something, you can actually help a young child to distinguish between hurt and anger. And I think it's very important to remember that anger is about embarrassment. Typically the reason you, you, you get angry is because you're embarrassed. And if you, if you understand that you're embarrassed um, and that maybe the world doesn't see you as embarrassed, um, you'll be less angry. But again, you, when you educate people like this, you're showing them that there are alternative things to imitate, in, in alternative patterns of behavior that they can imitate. I suppose social consequences and their own choices will determine what they do long term. Another physical dimension I don't really want to avoid is that I'm sure certain people are born with longer legs, with run faster, who've got particular connections in their brain that make it easy for them to do things like be good musicians or mathematicians or good artists or something. There, there must be physical, physiological dimensions that mean that when you imitate a certain behavior, you find it much easier because of the physical dimensions of your body. And I think that exists, I'm not denying that, and there are certain behaviors, therefore, you will find easier or you, you know, the consequences of your doing them will be easier. If, if you're a tall person with you know, long arms and legs and you've been brought up in a very sort of athletic, sporty family, you'll find sport a lot easier to do than a little squat person who's poorly co coordinated. I think even, even if you both do the same amount of work on, on sport, you'd find that people have a natural tendency to something because of their physical attributes. And therefore, that would alter their behaviour. I'm, I'm accepting that as, you know, we are all slightly different physically. But I still think that we choose based on role models and the social consequences of our actions, which decide whether we imitate or choose to imitate another role model. And my constant reference to imitating others is puts a lot of emphasis on the social interaction that human beings learn their behaviors, choose their behaviors from other people. And if you want to alter their behavior, you need to use other people. You need to use peer pressure. I must admit I'm a big fan of the idea that things like staying at school or losing weight or all these things that... Uh, we want people to do, it's best done by role models and peer pressure than, than it is done by, I don't know, things like taxes or punishment or remaining silent or feeling sorry for people. 
I, I suspect, if, if you want to call it that, peer pressure or social pressure, um, providing alternative role models for people is most likely the way to alter behaviour. So, as a self-reflective assignment, who are your role models? And if you work in a group, can you identify who their role models are? What, what, what is determining their choices of how to act, their behavior? And are they aware that they've made those choices? Are they explicit to them? It might be useful to think of a specific example Take an event that happened recently, either in your lives or at work, an, an incident, and try and work out what behaviours were being imitated. Thank you very much.